From Foreign Policy, I'm Elias Grohl sitting in for Sarah Wildman, and this is The ER. This week, North Korea. The United States has great strength and patience, but if it is forced to defend itself or its allies, we will have no choice but to totally destroy North Korea. Throughout the past year, President Trump has openly disparaged the nuclear-armed country and its leader, Kim Jong-un. Mainly, it's been on Twitter, but also at the United Nations last September. Rocket Man is on a suicide mission for himself and for his regime. But Trump struck a very different note this past April when he announced a summit between the two countries. Uh, Kim Jong-un, was uh, he really has been uh, very open and I think very honorable from everything we're seeing. A short time after the summit was announced, Trump canceled, and then a week later announced it was back on. We're meeting with the chairman on uh, June 12th, and I think it's probably going to be a very successful, ultimately a successful process. We'll see. Remember what I say. We will see what we will see. What Trump won't see is North Korea itself, as the summit is being held in a hotel in Singapore. Very few Americans get a chance to see North Korea, and only a handful have ever been granted access to their nuclear sites. One of those Americans happens to be Siegfried Hecker. He's a nuclear scientist at Stanford University and the former director of the Los Alamos National Lab, which was the birthplace of the atomic bomb. He's our guest today. Hello, this is Sig Hecker. Hi, Sig. This is Elias Grohl. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you, Elias. Thanks for making the time to talk. How is the connection? Can you hear me okay? Your voice is coming through uh, very, very clearly. But uh, before we start, you know, tell me a little bit more about what you do with your podcasts and then what you expect from me. Yeah, sure. So this is, it usually runs about 30 minutes. We try to keep it pretty casual. Uh, you're free to curse if you want, if you feel so inclined. This is a, uh, a safe space for uh, whatever you choose to bring to the table. You know, I think we're really interested in hearing about what you saw when you were in North Korea, what you experienced there. Okay, very good. I'm ready. When you first went to North Korea in 2004, how was it that that visit came about? So actually, I never wanted to go to North Korea. You know, it was not on my favorite garden spots to visit. So in 2003, I was still at Los Alamos. You know, I spent most of my professional career at Los Alamos actually starting as a young student in 1965. And my colleague, John Lewis, professor at Stanford, who'd previously been to North Korea eight or nine times, uh, called me up and said, look, the the North Koreans just told me um, they want me back and they're going to take me to the nuclear facilities. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a political scientist, he said. You know, I want you to come along. And I knew John from other interrelationships of things that we worked in relation to China and other countries, Russia. And so uh, John and I said, I don't want to go to North Korea. But it turns out John's a very, very persistent person. And so here I wound up in early January of 2004 uh, in North Korea. Now, why would they have wanted to do this? And it's a long and complicated story. But the short version is they were going to show us that they had totally reactivated the nuclear complex, which had been sitting there on hold, frozen, so to speak, uh, for eight years that they had reactivated, they had extracted the plutonium, and they built the bomb, and they wanted us to go back and tell the Bush administration, look, we have the bomb, 
you better pay us some respect. So you're the former director of Los Alamos, America's premier weapons laboratory, essentially, and you show up in North Korea. How, How do they treat you? They were so professional, and they had clearly been given instructions. Look, within certain bounds, sort of I called it an envelope, tell him everything. You know, answer his questions, show him, tell him. But then when he gets to the boundary, you know, tell him he can't go there. So, for example, if I want to know, you know, how do they design a bomb, they're not going to answer that question. But in the plutonium complex, they basically showed us everything and answered everything. So it was great respect, and it was also almost a form of camaraderie. It's a lot like when scientists from sort of all over the world get together. You know, they speak a common language in a way, even though he spoke Korean, you know, I spoke English and we uh, communicated through an interpreter. But there's almost a common bond. And so they showed me, I asked question after question after question. They patiently answered those, showed me something else, you know, when I wasn't certain that they had shown me enough. It was just terrific. And then when I got to the boundary a couple of times, they would say, well, Dr. Hecker, you know, I've already told you twice. I can't, you know, I'm not authorized to tell you that. And so I'd back off. So I found them competent respectful. Uh, And then actually, the part that surprised me more is often displaying a great sense of humor. Do you have a good North Korean joke you can share? (laughs) So one I actually like the best in terms of observation, uh, it comes from uh, Ministry of Foreign Affairs people. The way that this worked, you know, we'd go out to Yangbyon, uh, the nuclear center, which is about 90 kilometers from Pyongyang. You know, we had driven out there uh, we spend essentially most of the day. We never stayed overnight there. They always brought us back. And in those particular times, you cover a lot of territory. And so I remember at one lunch particularly, uh, you know, I said to one of my interlocutors from the ministry, I said, you know, from what uh, you know, I've read about North Korea is you guys really seem to like American videos. Particularly, I said, you know, I'd, I'd heard that the dear leader, uh, Kim Jong-il, that he has a huge collection of American videos. And my interlocutor sort of nodded uh, his head. And I said, so do you like American videos? And he gave me this broad smile, and he said, "Uh, yes, I do. So I said, what's your favorite American movie? And he says, Rambo. And I said, oh, my God, why am I not surprised? You know, I'm in North Korea after all. So when you're traveling to North Korea on these trips, what is your objective? Oh, so that's very interesting because a lot of people say, oh, oh, so you went to North Korea as an inspector. I said, no, no, I was not an inspector. So then they would say, well, you, you went you know, on government business. I said, no, no, I, I did not go on government business. So I don't go to inspect. So I don't go to negotiate. You know, that's not my role. So the best way I can explain uh, what I do is as I go to try to understand and to try to get the best possible assessment of their nuclear program, of their people, and particularly the understanding on the way to how can we reconcile the differences in order to solve the problem with the North Korean nuclear program. And since I've dealt with nuclear things, you know, since 1965 at Los Alamos, then I'm particularly concerned that we don't have a nuclear crisis that gets out of hand, which is what 2017 uh, looked like. So I, I go to understand, 
And to understand then, you, you know, what I found long, long time ago in going to Russia and China is you can't just stick to the technical and nuclear arena. You have to understand people. You have to understand the country. You've got to understand the history and the culture. And so in all of these trips, uh, we made sure we also got out and around. That gives you a very different perspective than an inspector. And it also means what's really important, since they know I'm not an inspector, you know, when the inspector comes to your house, you usually try to hide something. You know? So inspector comes into your nuclear facility, you usually try to hide something. With me, they had a very different approach. They were trying to show me, they were trying to convince me, they were trying to impress me. And that led to being able to learn a lot. And the learning, I hope, then would actually help to resolve some of the big problems. In 2010, your most recent visit, what did you experience when you were there? So 2010, in November, was my seventh visit and the fourth to Yangbyon. Uh, and even though I had sort of been all over Yangbyon before, this one uh, was just the most remarkable and it was most remarkable uh, in the fact that they had started a new program in Yangbyon. And so in that visit, they showed us both an enrichment facility that just uh, was remarkable and, and, quite frankly, was just flabbergasting to see it. And then in addition, they also showed us they're building a new small reactor for which they would also need enrichment to make fuel. So what was it that was so remarkable about the enrichment facility? I think you were the first American scientist to see that enrichment facility. Isn't that right? So it turns out not only the first but the last. So nobody has been back into Yangbyon, certainly not in that facility. So what was remarkable, so the North Koreans uh, in 2002, uh, actually in their first meeting with the Bush administration, they were accused of doing uranium enrichment uh, and then for the next you know, five, six years, they just denied the fact that they were doing uranium enrichment. Uh, and I had my visits uh, with the North Koreans. I told them, look, we know you're doing some uh, uranium enrichment. So when they allowed me to come back to the complex uh, in 2010, I was not surprised that they might show me some uranium enrichment capabilities. But I expected those to be very small, uh, very primitive. Uh, instead... They took us inside a building that I had been in a couple of times before that between 2009, around the May time frame, and November 2010, they completely gutted that entire building, and they built this modern centrifuge facility. So they walked us up these steps. Everything uh, was renovated inside, and then they took us in front of these uh, windows, which essentially uh, looked down into the centrifuge hall and what was down there, our mouth just must have opened, you know, a foot wide because we couldn't believe what we saw. Essentially, 2,000 centrifuges, ultra-modern facility. We walked into the control room, and instead of the old type of 50s, 60s-style strip chart recorders, everything was modern. You know, flat panel displays, LED light-emitting diode displays. It was just incredible. And so they blew our socks off. So this was something that the North Koreans had been concealing prior to your visit. Why did they decide to show you this facility? So, yeah, I was puzzled by that also for, for quite some time. Uh, the uranium enrichment path to the bomb, essentially, we didn't know that they had completely reconfigured that building. 
We don't know whether they had another facility anyplace else uh, that makes enrichment. You just can't tell. In other words, the signature uh, is essentially non-existent. And from outer space, you know, where we typically do our satellite imagery, uh, we can't tell much of anything. So I believe what they wanted to tell the Americans is, okay, so you know we have plutonium capabilities to the bomb. And now we're going to show you that we also have the uranium capabilities to the bomb. And by the way, for that path to the bomb, you'll never know how much we have and you'll never know where it all is. That's what I think the message was for that visit. Do you think the American and perhaps Western nuclear community has a bit of a history of underestimating North Korean nuclear capabilities and and research capabilities? Uh, let me actually explain the way to understand the nuclear business. You have to have three things to have a nuclear arsenal. You have to have the bomb fuel, and that's plutonium, highly enriched uranium, or for hydrogen bombs, uh, tritium. And then you have to be able to weaponize, and that's what I would call, well, you have to design, you've got to build, and you have to test the weapons, so the second phase. The third phase is you have to be able to deliver it. So for a while, we actually thought they were more capable than they actually were, that perhaps they had more weapons than they really do, because in the end, there are great uncertainties. But then they did surprise us uh, with the huge ICBM that they they lofted it. Uh, in other words, they shot it very high instead of very far, November 29th of last year. And I think that was surprising that they were able to get to that technology. And then they surprised us with the huge nuclear tests on September 3rd of 2017, uh, which uh, the best we can tell, it was probably a hydrogen bomb. Maybe now we actually, again, overestimate it in saying, all right, so they showed they have an ICBM. They've looked like they've tested a hydrogen bomb so they can reach the mainland United States. And my answer to that is I do not believe so because altogether they haven't done enough ICBM tests. They would need to do another nuclear test. And so that actually is what gives us some hope as we go forward. So if we still want them to stop, short of being able to reach the United States, there's still time. So the Trump administration is advocating for what they call the complete, verifiable, and irreversible dismantlement of North Korea's nuclear program. Kim Jong-un, meanwhile, has committed to what he has called the denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. These are two very different things. But do you think that there's a way to bridge the gap between these two sides? Well, I think so. What we've laid out is sort of a potential way that we could go, you know, maybe as long as a 10-year process, perhaps even longer if the politics don't work out. Because my view is, in the end, they're not going to eliminate until they feel secure. And so something is going to have to replace the nuclear weapons, which are the things that they look to now to guarantee their security. And, and there's no summit, no piece of paper, nothing that's going to do that. It's going to be a process. And the process that I would see it is sort of process of coexistence and, and interdependence. If you work that right, you know, over the next six to ten years time frame, you'd have a chance. You know, what they've objected to quite vehemently is the Libya model, the idea being that you get rid of everything instantly and that you actually ship the nuclear program out of North Korea and you ship it to the United States. Well, it, it turns out that's not only not feasible, uh, if you're talking about shipping nuclear weapons, 
that's downright dangerous. I mean, who in the world would want to take North Korea nuclear weapons, put it on one of our C-17s or whatever, and fly it across the United States? And what city in the United States is going to go ahead and take their weapons, and who's going to disassemble them? So that's a dangerous approach. The only way that you could do it, if they're really willing to get rid of them, is they disassemble them. Once they disassemble them, we can work the rest of the process. So from the North Korean side, I think as long as we agree to a phased process and that process which allows them to gain some faith uh, that indeed their security would be guaranteed, they may well be at a point. And this is where Kim Jong-un could be very different from his father and grandfather. He may actually get to a point where he says, look, these nuclear weapons are more of a bother than they're worth. You know, what I really have to do is be able to bring the economy of the country up, especially as more and more of his people actually see how well-off is South Korea and how well-off is China. I, for one, would love to get on a plane with a partially disassembled North Korean nuclear bomb. I think that would be great. But let's get into sort of some of the aspects of the North Korean nuclear program. And what are the technical hurdles for for denuclearizing or rolling back that program? What we're talking about is demilitarization of their nuclear complex, not necessarily all denuclearization. If you would settle for that, then it turns out the nuclear facilities are pretty easy to make certain that you've taken the risk away from those. So, for example, the reactor that makes plutonium, uh, we know how to poison the core of that reactor in order to make it inoperable forever. That's pretty easy to do. The place, what's called the reprocessing facility, where they extract the plutonium from the fuel that was in the reactor, uh, similarly, we, we know how to fix that facility in such a way that it's never going to work again for reprocessing. So we know how to deal with those in terms of, let's say, the deactivating them for military purposes. The more important question that has to be answered is would the United States actually agree uh, that the North Koreans could have some semblance of a civilian nuclear program? So this is actually, it's a process that can be laid out, take care of the military threat first, have them agree that they're going to demilitarize, uh, and then decide whether you're going to allow them to keep a civilian nuclear program, civilian space program, which I favor, and then after that, see what you can do to verify that they actually have gotten rid of all of the aspects of a nuclear weapons program. You've talked to North Korean nuclear officials and, and scientists. What's your sense of what they absolutely will not give up? Where, where are their red lines in this negotiation? Uh, they have made it very clear to me uh, that a civilian nuclear program is important for them. It's important both for technical reasons. They want to be able to demonstrate that they can build those light water reactors, that they can build uranium centrifuge facilities, So it's important technically, but even more so, and this is particularly Ministry of Foreign Affairs people have said, look, it's important symbolically. You know, nuclear technology is a high-level technology. That's modern technology. We want to be seen as a modern country. For example, centrifuges, there are not many countries around the world that, that are running centrifuge facilities. And so symbolically, it's very important. Uh, peaceful space launch, 
uh, they've told me several times, absolutely essential to them. They said, you know, South Korea does it. Why can't we have it? Uh, and they have a point. I mean, after all, there are a lot of countries that have satellites. Either somebody else sends them up or they send them up themselves. And this is what we tried to lay out in our report in terms of our you know, advice or suggestion for the U.S. government. Don't try to avoid all risks you know, from the North Korean nuclear and missile program. Manage the risks. So do you think that President Donald Trump needs a great deal of technical knowledge going into this summit that's supposed to happen on, on June 12 in Singapore? Are his advisors giving him some crash course in uh, nuclear weapons science and, and technology right now? Or is this going to be a more people-focused negotiation, do you think? Well, for, first of all, President Trump does not need the technical knowledge uh, himself, and very few presidents have ever had that. What he needs is the appropriate advisors that have the sense of that technical knowledge. You know, his skills is going to have to be in the people part of this, uh, and at least the way that I would see it. And right now, I, I must say, the opportunity is immense. I mean, it really is a historic opportunity uh, to where things have been lined up in a direction to where he could go over, hopefully with Kim Jong-un, reach some high-level agreement. You know, perhaps, as President Trump said last week, it's going to be a process. So to lay out a process and agree on the end goal and then go ahead and set both his policy experts and his technical experts on the way to then go ahead and negotiate and bring this to fruition with the North Korean. That's going to be a long process. Uh, the president's role, from my standpoint, would be essentially to enable that. So let's say you're a, a betting man. What do you think the odds are for a successful summit? Well, that depends what you mean by a successful summit. Uh, if you mean a successful summit that North Korea is going to ship out its weapon, uh, the uh, odds for that are zero. Uh, if, on the other hand, a successful summit that they actually get together, have decent enough sort of personal rapport to lay out a path forward, you know, that might uh, include, for example, President Trump may, you know, agree to say, hey, look, they signed some sort of a end of war document, uh, you know, because the Korean War is still officially is not over. And then uh, that they have an agreement that uh, they're going to denuclearize. Denuclearize means essentially demilitarize the elimination of nuclear weapons eventually, and we're going to give our people a chance to go ahead and negotiate that. I would think that the prospects for that are much greater than 50%. All right. Well, Dr. Hecker, thank you so much for your time. This was a, a great discussion, and uh, really appreciate you making the time to uh, make this happen with us. Okay, I hope it was useful. Thanks for the opportunity. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you. You've been listening to Foreign Policy's The ER Podcast. I'm Elias Grohl, and I've been your host. The podcast is produced by Shelby Bostet and Dan Efron. For more information about foreign policy and to subscribe to The ER, please visit foreignpolicy.com, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>